Welcome to the Roadie Medic Podcast, the podcast about the people who make up the life of live events. Join me and my guests as we tour through the merging scenes and landscapes of live music, festivals, pre-hospital care, public health, and frontiers beyond. All right. So thank you for uh, joining us on the Roadie Medic Podcast. Uh, this episode, we'll be looking at mass gatherings in the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll be looking at how uh, research informs policy, and we'll be looking at the uh, translation of that policy into practice uh, in our everyday lives. My guests today are Dr. Jamie Rance from the Gold Coast in Australia. He's an expert researcher in mass gatherings and disaster medicine at Griffith University. So thank you for joining. Jamie uh, has published extensively in the field. Uh, he's providing consultancy to the World Health Organization in his region. And most recently, that's focusing on interventions and mitigation strategies for mass gatherings uh, during the pandemic. Uh, we're also joined by Alan Withers, uh, who's probably been doing event medicine as long as I've been alive. Uh, he's the managing director of ShowMed, uh, which is one of the major event providers across the UK, covering mass gatherings at music venues, arenas, and stadia across the land. You can follow my guests at Jamie Rance on Twitter uh, or jamierance.com to look at his extensive work in the field. And you can follow Alan at Alan Withers. Uh, and ultimately, you can go to showmed.com for more information. So Jamie, can I just start with you? Can you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, uh, your roles, uh, and what you've been up to recently? Yeah, so in terms of my background, um, my profession is as a registered nurse, uh, predominantly in the emergency department context. And uh, alongside my nursing career, I've also volunteered with St John Ambulance in the pre-hospital environment, particularly around major events and disasters. And uh, in that role, I joined St John Ambulance at the age of 13. And uh, when I was 14 years old, I was at a football stadium where an 86-year-old lady collapsed and had a cardiac arrest. So I was involved in the resuscitation of her at that point in time. And since then, I've always had an interest in helping people, um, trying to do better things in the, the mass gathering or pre-hospital context. And uh, that has led me to do some research in this space. And I'm particularly interested now that I think we've got a better understanding of things that influence patient presentations at major events. Now I'm more interested in, well, what is the impact of major events on our emergency health services, particularly emergency departments and ambulance services who aren't necessarily always aware that events are occurring and therefore aren't always necessarily prepared. And uh, I guess the bigger ethos of that work is about how do we ensure that we can still provide adequate health services to the population where an event is being hosted um, of a major event. So could you just explain to us uh, the sort of definitions of what a mass gathering is and what disasters are and can you tease apart the distinctions between the two? Yeah, so I guess the key thing around a mass gathering or a major event is that it's often a place where people come together for a common cause or purpose. Um, some people like to define them by the numbers of people that gather at that particular event. I'm less interested in that um, because I think that that's much more complicated and complex than that. And it's often based on various event characteristics which determine how risky the event is from a health perspective, right? Um, 
A disaster normally means that uh, if a disaster occurs, it overwhelms the capacity of the normal operations of a particular health service. And I guess at some points, those two things can intersect. That is, if you have a large group of people who congregate for a particular purpose and something happens to that large population, uh, that may result in a disaster, which therefore overwhelms the capacity of the health service. We know that uh, more recently that uh, mass gatherings or major events are particularly soft targets um, for people who like to do deliberate acts of harm. And those deliberate acts of harm obviously result in large numbers of people being injured or killed at major events. So that definitely intersects then with the idea that it can cause disasters. But for the majority of occasions, mass gatherings which are often planned, and they're often planned months and months and months in advance, don't result in a disaster. In fact, what we do is we put in place various strategies and implement various health service requirements at such events so that they don't impact on our local health services, so that we can cater to the local population within the event if they become ill or unwell at that particular event. And as such, we don't see the disaster resulting from that particular event. So I guess one of the key characteristics differentiating mass gatherings and disasters is that one, commonly planned months in advance, well, maybe they both are, but often one is planned months in advance, whereas a disaster, we kind of, well, in the Australian context, at least, kind of think about it as something that is a little bit more unplanned, natural disaster type of event with bushfires, floods, cyclones, for example. So I guess they're some of the key characteristics which might differentiate disaster from mass gathering, but one can occur with the other. Okay, that's really, that's brilliant. Thanks for that. It's really a um, concise summary of, of the similarities, differences. Alan, as a provider, can you tell us about yourself? As you, uh, as you said in your introduction there, um, I've been around the block um, for a number of years. So um, yeah, thank you for that. Um, I've been around pre-hospital care for 35 years now. Um, I started as a technician in the ambulance service, then paramedic, and went into operations management. Um, and then on this day in 1996, um, the um, IRA um, bombed Manchester, um, which is where I was working at the time. Um, and my role changed from, um, I was working in the um, 999 control centre then, um, but I then changed into emergency planning. So for the last four years of my ambulance service career, I was... Um, around emergency planning. I guess in the late sort of 90s, event planning, events, uh, the event world was changing. Um, following Hillsborough, there was a massive change in, in how things uh, operated. Um, and I saw a little bit of a niche where um, there wasn't one private provider that could manage a whole event, as it were. So the ambulances, the first aid element, the um, the doctors, the nurses. Um, so I, I set about um, establishing Showmed as a brand, and um, that's that's really where we are today, um, twenty years later. So, and so, can you tell us about sort of Showmed, um, what the business was doing pre-COVID, and, and what what you guys are up to now? So yeah, pre-COVID was pretty manic, really. I suppose um, we were February March time. We were busy uh, uh, as Jamie says you know there's a lot of planning going on we've got um, three major tours going out stadium tours going out through the summer 
2019, we were involved in 2,500 plus events. We got 260 staff on our books. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty full on every day. Um, and then obviously um, the plug was pulled. Um, COVID hit and um, we went into lockdown. So um, pretty much we've been mothballed um, since, since March. This last three or four weeks of, of, of seeing the green shoots of recovery, clients are coming back and saying, right, okay, we need to put strategies in place and one thing or another. So, um, and, and yeah, we, 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 we've changed from full on medical infrastructure to looking at temperature checking and um, entry, um, entry operations really at uh, sports grounds. From the WHO perspective and from the policy perspective, um, why should people really care about uh, mass gatherings? Yeah, good question. So uh, I guess my, my role with WHO is um, I'm doing a short-term consultancy with the Western Pacific Region Office. And my role is really about uh, providing advice regarding mass gatherings and COVID. So why should we be excited? Well, I think that we know now from COVID that it has different virology and transmission than most other coronavirus or influenzas that we've seen. Um, we know that if there are large groups of people congregated closely to one another, that that risk of transmission is increased. So any time that we have a, a crowded place, the risk of transmission of COVID is increased. And we know that people come together at mass gatherings um, and crowd, and often that is of a high density of people but it's not only at the event itself, which results in high density um, of people. It's also the way to the event. Um, it might be during intermissions within the event and it might be at the event when everyone's trying to leave. So as Alan said, it's really important to, to come up with some mitigation strategies, essentially to limit the times in which people are crowded together at particular um, what I would call designated areas within an event and come up with ways in which you can try to operate in what I would term a COVID safe manner. But I would use that cautiously because even though it's COVID safe as possible um, with any crowd, there's still a risk that COVID transmission will occur. And that's really got to do with um, regardless of whatever strategies you put in place and whatever the risk matrixes might tell you the risk being, it purely comes down to the fact that is there somebody in the crowd or attending your event that has COVID or not? And that's what's really going to determine whether or not there's transmission at your event. You can try and limit it as much as possible, but there's still a risk. So I guess um, when it comes to, to mass gatherings and COVID, you've got this sort of planning phase that um, preparation that happens. You've got the operational phase of putting in, in, into action those plans. Um, and then you've got sort of the final phase, the post event phase. So after the events happened, the repercussions, uh, the lessons learned and the legacy. Do you want to go into a bit more about the, the planning phase? I can, yeah, I can definitely speak to that. Absolutely. Um, so I think, all three phases are of equal importance. So we know that um, during the planning phase, traditionally um, event organizers, um, depending on the size of the event, 
may engage with contractors or subcontractors to work on specific elements of the planning of the event. That may include um, food and catering. It could include first aid or in-event health services. It could include uh, security and policing measures. What I think um, the legacy of COVID is going to be is that all of those particular agencies, together with all event staff, contractors or subcontractors or volunteers, are going to need to work in a more cohesive way, that they're going to need to work more closely with one another because often the strategies which you're putting in place for one group of people or event type staff really overlaps with what other event type staff are doing. There needs to be clear conversations in the planning stage about um, who's responsible for what, who's responsible for monitoring crowd density and escalating that if there is periods or identified pockets of dense crowds and what do you do about that once you tell somebody. Um, so the planning phase is really important and then the implementation phase, which I've started to talk about now, um, is really fluid and dynamic. So whilst you might have some COVID safe type strategies in place, we know that events are so dynamic that that plan is just a plan and it can definitely change um, within minutes of an event starting or leading up to the event. You can't control all aspects of your event because there are so many people there and people are individual. The last phase that you've talked about in terms of uh, the post-event phase, the legacy and the lessons learnt, to some degree is the most important phase because what we're going to find now is about what actually worked and what didn't work so that we can strengthen future plans. That's really the gateway to opening up events to have more people at them. Um, if we can develop strategies which are safer than the event before and the event before that, I guess you get confidence by government policymakers that you can have safer type events. And you also get confidence and willingness of people within those communities to act in a COVID safe way by the end of the day, needing to take personal responsibility to ensure that they can maintain their own physical distancing from other family units and groups of people. The event organiser, therefore, is ultimately responsible for ensuring that there's opportunities for people to do that. They can't ultimately control people, but they need to make sure that there's opportunities for people to engage in physical distancing themselves as a measure in amongst a raft of other measures that might be considered from a public health perspective at events. So, Alan, you've been involved in the sort of planning phase uh, for some, some closed door events. Um, what's it been like interacting with stakeholders now that most of us are off, you know, working online at home? Yeah, the, uh, the Zoom meetings get quite interesting when you've got uh, 29, 30 people um, on board. So you have to, you have, to have a very strong uh, chairperson there, I suppose. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'll reinforce what Jamie's saying, you know, the, the, the interaction between the agencies now. Um, I think in the UK has is, is always been really important. You know, we have the safety advisory group meetings um, and we all come together at those security providers, uh, promoters, uh, you know, local authorities, venue holders. Um, so, so that's all always been quite strong, but um, now it needs to be stronger than ever um, as, we, as we move forward. One of the things that I did notice over the last few days is um, there's, there's some set questions that everybody has to, has to answer when they arrive on, on site. Have you been contacted by NHS Track and Trace? That's the first question. Uh, are you feeling unwell? Uh, the third question is, have you taken paracetamol or ibuprofen in the last four hours? 
Okay, so already in the industry, people are getting used to those three questions and they will get out of their cars and walk towards you and it's no, 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 before you've even got a chance to, um, you know, ask the questions really. So that I, 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 I'm not sure whether those, those questions are the right questions, whether we need to relook at that. Um, but, but certainly already people in the industry are getting used to what the process is um, and they just want to crack on with what, what is normal right now. The WHO have produced mass gathering risk assessment tools. Um, how much is that being adopted in the UK? Obviously the, the, the rules are, are there. Um, I, I've not seen anybody specifically referring to them, um, but, but the planning process, yeah, is there. Um, certainly from an operational perspective, you know, um, the, the event control, um, if they see people that aren't socially distancing on the cameras, they're straight onto them on the radios um, uh, and so on and so forth. So, you know, the, the messages are there uh, and um, it, it, that's, that's the management phase now, the operational phase. It's just carrying that through, making sure that the, the, those um, rules are adhered to. Mm -hmm. So, so it sounds like um, the UK locality is finding its own way, um, but it's not necessarily um, mandated by government that we have to follow it in a particular way, I guess, because it's so dynamic. Yeah, it is a well, it clearly is a dy dynamic situation um, with the with the social distancing now under discussion, reducing down to um, to one meter um, in a, in a couple of weeks. So um, that that possibly you know is definitely a step in the right direction. Um, whether it's mandated by government, um, I mean, horse racing is mandated by the British Horse Racing Authority. Um, they've got representatives on, on all the entry points and around the stables um, and so on and so forth. So um, it, it is being mandated, it is being watched and it is being audited. Uh, and these guys are feeding back into to the centre um, all throughout the day what's, what's going on. So, Jamie, can you talk to us about... Um the WHO's mass gathering risk assessment um, toolkit that they've put out. Yeah, yeah. So the WHO has released a risk assessment tool, um, which they encourage event organisers and operators and government to use um, when considering whether or not an event should go ahead. And if an event goes ahead, what mitigation strategies uh, event organisers might put in place. I guess the, uh, that's had input into it from various mass gathering experts globally and various people within the various WHO regions. Um, the premise being that, I guess, that there needs to be some type of risk assessment done to determine the elements of risk associated with your event. So whether you use the WHO risk assessment tool or whether there is a risk assessment tool that you already use that you have now contextualised for COVID, or whether your local jurisdiction, council or government body has their own risk assessment tool, it doesn't really matter. I guess from the WHO perspective, my sense is that um, they're really just wanting people to think about it from a risk perspective, acknowledging that not one event is necessarily the same and therefore you can't necessarily apply the same principles and strategies to all events. There may be some overarching principles, and these overarching principles I would suggest are things like um, ensuring you've got best practice in terms of your governance in place. And that's some of the stuff we've already spoken about in how you work with other people and get your normal approvals to hold an event. Other strategies around physical distancing, 
um, and enhance public health measures with screening and contract tracing and frequency of cleaning of venues and hand sanitizers and hand station, washing stations available. Um, and then the fourth thing that should be probably key across all events is um, ensuring that you've got adequate in-event health service or first aid type support to one, if someone does exhibit COVID-like symptoms, how do you isolate them? How do you manage them? How do you move them through a crowd? How do you move them out of your event? Where are they going? And so forth. So they're probably some really key principles that could be applied to all events. And then there definitely are specific ones for events. Um, if you're in a stadium versus on an open road marathon, there's different types of strategies you might put in place. Um, if there's food and catering and alcohol being sold, that might have different strategies to if there's not. Um, if you're at a venue that has porter toilets or porter loos at them, uh, there's probably different strategies than if you've got um, you know fixed structures for toilets. Uh, if you're at an event which is got ticketed and gated and a commencement time versus something that is kind of just come when you when you want to come. Um, and likewise with completion times, if you're at an event that comp completes at a certain time versus an event which kind of just carries on into the night, um, you're going to expect different crowd dynamics. So really, the risk assessment is uh, a good idea to do and you just need, under, need to undertake a risk assessment process, whatever that looks like for your jurisdiction but you need to consider the uniqueness of the individual event and apply specific strategies to it. And each event's going to be different and therefore each strategies are going to be different too. So Alan, Alan, you're sort of um, doing some more event cover in the future. Um, how's the temperature checking going on there? Um, so yeah, we're, we're, we're doing some work um, on cricket and obviously, uh, you know, England being the masters of cricket, the, uh, the world champions over Australia. Alan? time so um yeah we can we can talk about that that's not a problem um what about so, rugby union <laughs> <laughs> well, we can probably talk. the same is it a <laughs> <laughs> <The> long discussion <laughs> on rugby union uh, <laughs> that should be up and running again on august the 15th i'm told so we're, we're looking looking forward to that um but the 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 we, we've got the west indies over here we've got three test matches um we are running um two of them at emerald old trafford in manchester and we've got the West Indies team in quarantine there at the moment. So um, we're providing medical staff uh, on a daily basis for when they're doing their practice sessions. Um, and um, yeah, just, there's, we, all of our staff have been COVID screened um, and are getting COVID screened every, every six to 10 days. So um, there's, there's a big operation going on, but it's in, instead of doing actual temperature checking, um, by you know an IR thermometer as we've been doing in horse racing um it, it's thermal imaging cameras on the way in so um and, we, and we've developed some quite strict protocols as well with the physios and the doctors um that our, our paramedics are looking after airways uh, and the physios and the doctors are looking after everything else so um because we've got the higher level of uh, PPE requirements so and this 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 yeah some interesting times going on there so, Jamie, what happens over in yeah. Australia at the moment? So, uh, at the moment, with events recommencing, it doesn't seem to be a um, common practice to do temperature checking. There's, you know, often uh, false negatives and false positives associated with temperature checking and infectious diseases in general. So, uh, maybe there's a larger characteristic of an individual which uh, profiles them as having 
potentially COVID or not, rather than temperature alone. Um, I guess temperature might give you some insight into starting points, but again, you know, of conversation, but again, the, the many factors of why you would have a temperature um, probably outweigh its usefulness in detecting COVID. Over the weekend, we've seen um, a lot of mass gatherings um, relating to, to protests um, around civil rights. And, you know, it's, it's quite controversial um, striking that balance between protecting population health uh, and civil uh, liberty. Um, what are your thoughts on um, what's going on there and finding that balance? Well, in, in terms of protests and, again, large groups of people gathering together, um, the risk is, again, that if there is someone within the crowd, that there may be the transmission of COVID-like illness uh, amongst the crowd. Um, the opposite is also true, and it's probably more my fear, that if there is nobody in the crowd that has COVID and they all gather and, and protest or whatever, and uh, no one gets COVID in terms of transmission, uh, we might end up with kind of a, a false understanding and expectations that, hey, we all gathered together and there was no transmission of COVID. Surely, we, therefore, we can go and have this event and there's going to be no transmission of COVID or that event and there'll be no transmission of COVID. So... I think, again, anytime you get people together, the risk is related to how many people in that event are going to have COVID. So the way that up against the, the rights and abilities for people to protest, I think it's going to depend again on, on where you are in which country you are and, and how that's policed and managed. Um, in the Australian context, we've had a number of of protests. Um, there have been has been at least one confirmed now COVID case of transmission related to those protests. Um, but overall, they've been somewhat calm. They've been people gathering in a park. They've been mostly sitting down with placards and signs. Um, they've been using megaphones to, to say what they wanna say. Um, there's been some street parade type marching activities, but really the co-mingling of crowds and the you know, cross-contamination likelihood is relatively small in comparison to some other events I've seen globally. Um, but again, there's always, always a risk. It is a higher risk than other types of events, I would suggest. Alan, what's your take on um, sort of how we should be going forwards in, in the UK setting? Sort of balancing uh, sort of uh, the public health risk um, and maybe just doing, uh, finding a way for safe, uh, safe mass gatherings, um, whether it's for political reasons, religious reasons, or whether it's for entertainment reasons, what, what are the next steps or the ways forwards you see for us to support that from happening? Certainly, in, 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 obviously, in terms of um, demonstrations, etc., um, you know, people will... Um, People will do what they want to do. You know, they, they, in the UK, we've got a right to peaceful demonstration. Um, and people will either come and uh, demonstrate peacefully, physical distance themselves, as we've seen at some. And then there'll be the faction that are hell-bent on um, causing trouble again. But we've seen the clashes across the media at the weekend. I think in terms of the entertainment, uh, sports industry, um, I think the one of the um, promoters has come up with the idea of um, an entry um, restriction um, is that you, you have to have the track and trace app um, and if you can prove on the track and trace that you've not come into contact with anybody 
that's got COVID in the last seven days, then you're allowed in. Um, if you're, if you have, then you get turned away. Um, that's just one consideration that, that could be there. Um, we've been working, as I've said, uh, with some of our venues um, on, um, again, en entry, um, and you can phys physical distance on the entry, you can slow the entry ride down, temperature checks, you can have thermal imaging, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what do, you, what do you do on the egress? What, what do you do? You know, you, you can have security in the venue, making sure that within a certain extent, people are physical distancing um, as much as they can. But once that curtain goes down, um, you know, people have got trains, they've got homes to go to, um, and all of a sudden that mentality changes. You know, they, they, they've got, they've got a, a definite I want to do now, um, and, and that, that's, that's going to be where the difficulty lies um, with, with events going forward, I, I feel. Um, in a year's time, um, what, do you, what do you think um, event provision is going to look like? Looking into your crystal ball, Alan. <laughs> yeah, my crystal ball. You don't want to go there. Um, okay, so um, in a year's time, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that 2021 is going to be the, the bumper year that we were expecting 2020 to be. You know, all the, all, all the events that we were involved in have been postponed until next year. Um, and my crystal ball says that we're going to have a vaccine and we're going to have um, everything's going to be hunky-dory again. Uh, and we'll be looking back on this. Um, and, and my grandchildren will be studying, studying this in their history and in lessons in the future. Um, Will we ever get back to uh, events that, that we've been used to? Will we see mosh pits? We will see crowd surfing uh, and all the rest of it. Um, it. It's an interesting, it's an interesting question to be honest with you. I think, I think we will get back to some uh, close uh, proximity events um, because that's what we've been used to, you know, the last 20 years. That's the sort of crowds that, that we've come, um, whether, um, my teenage um, kids will want to be doing that. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, they, they seem to be the ones that are, um, are looking at this more pragmatically than probably you know, the 30, 40 year olds, to be honest with you. Um, but yeah, let's wait and see. With the changes that have happened now and the things that might happen in the future, are there things like training, further training um, needs for your staff that, that are going to come up? Yes, yeah, so none of our, none of our staff are, have been allowed back to work so far um, until they've done, um, we've done a mandatory training package on COVID-19. So that's about understanding how, how you know, it's transmitted, what the symptoms are. Um, and then we've gone into obviously level two and level three, PPE, doffing and donning. Um, so no one's coming back to work until they've actually been signed off on that. Um, so we've, we've got our own um, learning management system within Showmed um, where we do all our mandatory training. Um, and and that, that, that's where we're at. And we're working on other packages as well at the moment. Okay. And Jamie, you, you talked about how the, the Australian context is very different in terms of uh, case numbers um, and, and mortality um, associated with COVID. Um, so it looks like events might be um, done, you know, in a very different way over the next six months, probably. Um, what are your thoughts going forwards? Yeah, so uh, today is what, 15th of June. And uh, I mentioned that uh, Australia's got a population of 26 million. Today we had uh, 
four new cases of COVID across the country. And in our hospitals at the moment, we have 19 patients with COVID and we have three patients in intensive care units across the country. So overall, we've done relatively well. I think the advantageous part of Australia is, is that we're a big island. Uh, so one, we're geographically dispersed as a population, but two, we're also somewhat isolated from the rest of the world too. And uh, with limited international airfares and so on, we have more ability to to restrict movement of people, which essentially slows down the, the progress of COVID as well. So for us, last weekend, uh, we had uh, what we call Australian Football League. It's kind of this cross Gaelic football type game played on a cricket pitch size field. Um, and they started back with 2000 participants at those events last weekend. And um, Australia is made up of eight states or territories and each state or territory has their own health officers and those chief health officers are determining what restrictions apply when and how. Uh, so some have borders closed between the various states or territories. Uh, some are allowing uh, participants back to sporting events and some not. Uh, so it's very interesting to see it unfold across Australia, which is a federation. Um, but essentially, people are coming back to crowds. Uh, crowds are coming back to events. And over the next few months, I think we'll see more and more of that. And like I said early on, I think it's going to be purely based on a risk and staggered approach. We're going to start to see some of the lower risk types of events. Football is a good example of that. If you have 2,000 people in a stadium, which normally holds 50,000 people, surely the risk of transmission is really low. Um, but the question then becomes at what how many people does it start to be important to think about transmission of COVID and so forth. So they're now thinking something like 25% capacity within stadiums might be a reasonable thing to have um, as we move forward. And I think people are to some degree just kind of making up numbers and hoping that they're right. But, you know, it's, it's somewhat best guessed. It's somewhat based on the idea that you keep people apart. Um, and overall, I think we're slowly coming back to events. I mean, it's, it's human nature to want to congregate for whatever it is, for, for entertainment, for religious reasons, um, for the occasion of it. I think we're drawn to it naturally. It's in our instinct to do that. Um, so the sooner we can get back to that, the better. Um, I've seen out there, there's some quite sci-fi looking research. So apart from um, low density crowds and hand washing and temperature checks um, and careful, careful planning, um, there's some new um, startups out there that are trying to um, sort of invent special kind of isolation suits that you would wear almost like um fashion ppe um so completely different from our usual um medical ppe um but using uh, different you know the same principles but using different materials um and so potentially we'll be interviewing um uh, the makers or the developers of the microsuit um on future episodes so um so listen out for that so guys i have to thank you uh, today for really giving your time uh, and giving the listeners your insights into um, mass gatherings and the COVID pandemic. And it'd be great to, to hear from you perhaps in maybe a year's time uh, and just see where we are then. Thank you for your time. Thank you. So if you've liked what you've heard so far, why not join us for future episodes on the Roadie Medic podcast? Coming up soon, we have interviews with bands, The Moots, the New York Brass Band, Portuguese digital folk artist, Omiri, and psychedelic rock band, Goldray. We'll also have an interview with Natasha Russell, an events production manager, along with Matt Longley from Six Feet from the Stage, a mental health organisation supporting the theatre and TV production 
industry. So if you've liked what you've heard, please do join us. Like, share and subscribe. And it would be awesome to have you all here for the ride. I've been Dr. Aaron Castro, the roadie medic. And appropriately, to play us out on an episode focused on mass gatherings, we've got more music from The Moods with Carnival. It's a carnival. And the mission is to get the recognition of the people Gotta listen to the chants I am a mood, I am a mood I'm with your loot to prove that the mood ain't a fluke It's the truth that tonight is the night Get yourself to the front, let the beat take your right to the peak Romances are romancing I'm twisted yet still skanking Those marching drums were banging Tonight's the night for chancing Those girls you wanna dance with I'll speak a different language I'll compliment backhanded My high until we land it Hi, I'm Sam from Reflex Medical and we're really pleased to be working in association with the Roadie Medic. We're your complete one-stop shop for pre-hospital care equipment, from bandages to defibrillators and everything in between. Our range is continually expanding and is comprised of some of the leading brands in the pre-hospital arena. We only sell equipment we would be happy using in our own event medical work as we know our customers deserve the best. We can supply bespoke and fully kitted bags and can offer leasing or hire options to help you get started. Contact us today on hello at reflexmedical.co.uk or give us a call on 0800 862. The Roadie Medic podcast is about the people who make up the life of live events. If you'd like to be a guest and join me as we tour through the merging scenes and landscapes of live music, festivals, pre-hospital care, public health and frontiers beyond, then tweet me at Aaron Castro ED, email at roadymedic at gmail.com, and let's keep the conversation going.